Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. It's wonderful to see you all tonight in the middle of what I'm sure for many of you is a very busy week. Uh, great that you've been able to come out and to devote this time to what I'm sure is going to be an immensely valuable evening. And as I look around, there are those from the congregation here, there are those from other churches nearby who I recognize, and there are some of you uh, who I don't recognize, which is wonderful. And you are all very, very welcome. My name is Paul. I'm minister here. And uh, it's our privilege, and it really is a privilege, to host this evening. And we're very glad to do that. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this building, uh, we obviously want you to feel relaxed and comfortable all the way through. So uh, there are toilets at that end and uh, plenty more through either of those doors into what we call the hub area and just on your right, uh, ladies and gentlemen's toilets there. So uh, just feel free to use those facilities. If the fire alarm goes, it will be for real and you will hear it. And the fire exits are likewise that end, those doors and an additional door there. So we should all get out very quickly. But I don't anticipate that to happen. Uh, we trust that you will be able to see and hear sufficiently all that is uh, being said from the front. If you want to move so that you are in a more comfortable place, feel free to do that. Uh, I think that's all that I need to say at this point in the way of housekeeping notices. Uh, we'd run the program through and then at the end there will be uh, an opportunity for a retiring offering for the uh, Musalaha project which uh, we will obviously be hearing a lot more about and uh, if you do need to leave that way straight away, uh, then that's okay. But we hope very much that you'll go this way, where there will be refreshments and uh, tea and coffee, decaffeinated versions, primarily. Uh, but uh, other, others, if you wish, it's all there. And uh, so light refreshments through, and it'd be great if you're able to join in talking to each other and just reflecting on the evening afterwards. And the retiring offering will be at both ends of the building. So I'm going to hand over to Neil Leticia, who is uh, one of the regional ministers here in the heart of England Baptist Association. Heber have uh, facilitated this whole program, and uh, we're very grateful. So over to you, Neil. Thank you, Paul. Do uh, come and join me. These are our guests. I'll introduce them to you in just a moment. Uh, but I'd like to add my thanks to, uh, to Paul's uh, for you coming, but particularly to Paul for, and to the church here for hosting us. And uh, Paul has always has been very generous in his hospitality, and uh, we feel very much at home. But it's lovely to be here. We, this is the fourth and final one of this series of uh, very similar events that's been happening over sort of Saturday, a couple on Sunday, and now this one here. So uh, uh, I, I know you are going to be uh, both uh, inspired and challenged, uh, but it is very moving to hear the stories uh, of uh, these uh, late dear ladies here. It's, a, it's, it's been a privilege for us as Heart of England Baptist Association to get to know uh, Masalaha UK, and in particular their chair, John Drake, who is uh, kind of leading the, uh, the next sort of hour and a quarter in... Um, in kind of uh, uh, really bringing the two stories together in the environment of, of how the organization itself works in the area 
of reconciliation. That's why this is headline, Reconciliation Event. Uh, hopefully you have uh, received uh, a leaflet as you came in. This will give you a bit more information. And uh, if you haven't got one of these, do please uh, let us know at the end and we'll let you have one of these. And uh, if you would like to hear more information and be on a mailing list, um, then when I stand down, I'm going to send these two clipboards with a couple of pens going up and down the rows. So uh, if you would like to put your name and contact details, then uh, uh, we'll give them to John. John will take them away. And then if you'd like further information, uh, then uh, they will be pleased to send that to you. But it's, it's, it's a privilege to, as I say, to introduce... Uh, John from Masalaha, UK, but um, also here nearest to me uh, is Shireen, and uh, Shireen is from Palace, uh, is from Bethlehem in uh, in the West Bank in uh, in Palestine, and um, we we're going to use different terminology, aren't we, over the evening as to what we refer to the Holy Land, which might be a more general uh, term. Um, but, but you'll understand what we're meaning as we, as we go through. Uh, and uh, Shireen is uh, so Palestinian and a Christian, and uh, so she will be telling us part of her story. Uh, and then next to uh, Shireen is Hedva, who is uh, a Messianic Jew living in the Golan, and uh, also obviously a Christian. And it is, uh, it is the whole theme of reconciliation tonight. Now, their context, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, is that they live in one of the most conflict-torn areas of the world, and there are many of those, but uh, perhaps one of the most, one of the most tricky politically uh, and one of the most painful places uh, in many ways to live. Uh, and, um, and yet these two ladies have uh, found in Christ... Uh, a place of love of one another, of, uh, of, of, of reconciliation, of working together for that uh, work of, of peace and reconciliation in that land. It is through the cross, it's through, we, Scripture reminds us that it's because God has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and then called us to the ministry of reconciliation. And they have heard that call they have worked through what that means. It doesn't mean they, uh, they see things the same. Far from it. And you'll hear a bit of that this evening. But they have learned how to be united and work together uh, and to respond to that call to the ministry of reconciliation in the place where they are. Our context, of course, is very different. But I I'm convinced that what we will hear and many of the things that we can learn are so relevant to us in our communities today. Um, again, you know, you don't need me to, to elaborate, but we, we experience so much profound difference, don't we? We hear of, of the things which divide both in our, our society and in church. And uh, so I... I believe there are some very important principles that we ourselves can pick up and think about, reflect upon, and take away and work on ourselves in the whole area of reconciliation. Maybe there are people we need to be reconciled with. Maybe we just need to bring that message of hope and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation into other people's 
conflicts. Whatever, I do hope that uh, you enjoy the evening, but that more than that, that you are inspired by it. So I'm going to hand over now to John. Thank you. Thank you. As you heard, my name is John Drake, and I am the chairman of Musalaha UK. I have the immense privilege of going out to the Holy Land about four, five, six times a year. Thank God for EasyJet, twice a day from Luton Airport. And, uh, <clears throat> and it comes back as well. Um, you can, other airlines are available, Wiz, Ryanair, etc. On one of my visits, I met up with Salim Munyaya, and you're going to meet him in, in a clip in a moment. And, but also, while I was beginning to appreciate the work of Mosalaha, I met Hedva and Shireen. And I thought, wow, I just wish my church back in Norwich could meet with these ladies. And then I thought, why don't we try and put a tour together? So I came up with a title called Women of Distinction. I thought that was a good title. And I thought, yeah, that sounds good. How do we go about that? And then one morning, I, I was in bed, and the phone rang. And a friend of mine said, hello, John. I hope I haven't woken you. Oh. Oh, no, no, are you all right? Yes, he said, would you like some money? Instantly, I was awake. <laughs> wow, yes. You know that, um, that, that, those women you were talking about, uh, I'll cover their airfares over. This guy had my attention, right? Uh, he said, you're going to have to do the rest. But I then thought, Lord, thank you for the nudge. Thank you for the nudge. Get out of bed, John. Get it together. And so we're here. And we're here because friends are here who've been out to Mus on a Musalaha program before. We've had encouragements from Neil and others. And we're here. But also, why are we here? And why are you here? This is what Jesus said about you. My prayer is not only for them alone. He's in the garden talking to his father. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, The night before he died, he was praying for us that me, we may be one. Go home and read it again. Read it for yourself. Not, not just praying for the disciples, this band that were gathered around him and would soon be scattered, but all of us through the generations who would come through their message to the same place of wanting to worship God the Father in the power of the Spirit through God the Son. And we are the answer to his prayer. But his prayer wasn't just for our salvation. 
It was that we would dwell together in unity so the whole world would know that he is Lord. That's what caught my heart. And that's why I'm committed to the work of reconciliation through Masala. So I'm thrilled that you're here tonight. And now I look for a miracle as I cast my eyes over your heads to the deck, the tech desk. And if you're ready to roll, we're ready to view. So the rest of you can pray that they press the right buttons and it works. Because you've all been here before and it's all gone. Ugh. So, team, if you can. time of the year and I think they're right and in Bethlehem every day is like Christmas there's no place in the world like Bethlehem I have a friend who lives in Bethlehem he just like thousands of other college kids he's trying to prepare for exams he's trying to find time to work and he wants to spend time with his friends like many other college students around the world, he has to work hard in order to live. He is in the tourism business. As you guess in Bethlehem, tourism is a big business. While he works with tourists, he is not the typical tour guide. His job is unique. He takes people through the wall, the wall that separates Israel and Palestine. And the wall not only separates Israel and Palestine, Wall that separate. Elias and his friend Isaac. For Elias, it is a daily reminder there is no peace on earth. It is something that my family know all too well. The story of Salim's family begins with his father Jacob. The year was 1948 war had broken out between Arabs and Jews fighting over a small patch of land in what was then called Palestine. It ended in the birth of a new nation, Israel. But it came at a terrible price for Jacob. Israeli soldiers took over his hometown, seizing his house and property, leaving the once prosperous and proud Palestinian an outcast in his own land. His heart was broken, not because of loss of homes and land. His heart was broken because a community, Christian community, that exists for a thousand years in this land, in this area, got shattered, got broken. I said, why you have not told us all that story, all those things that happened? And he said, we didn't want you to grow up, to grow up with uh, bitterness, with anger, with a seed of hatred that will color and prevent you uh, and, and block your ability to be a healthy human being in the future. Salim says his father was able to forgive his enemies because of his faith in Jesus. A baby born 2,000 years ago into a similar world of hatred and division was still at work today, quietly softening hearts and sharing a message of forgiveness and peace. 
a message that even penetrated the heart of a former enemy. Sixty years ago, Joseph ben Eleazar, a Holocaust survivor, was one of the actual Israeli soldiers who evicted Jacob and other Palestinians from their homes. In the years since, he had become a follower of Jesus and now wanted to meet with Jacob to ask forgiveness. Shalom, Ata Yaakov. Shmi Yosef. Ata Yedeshanitu ben Eser. Hakara lano ato davar bepolanya. Girshu otanu vaniyadati mashomer. Shanashim holchim ozvim etam. Vehem kamkil bnei adam. Vehem kamkil. Yitzurei Elohim. Shani pitom raiti shabshavuze Yeshua ba. That amazing legacy of peace and reconciliation was passed on to Jacob's son, Salim. He also embraced the teachings of Jesus and chose to forgive rather than fight his Jewish neighbors. My spiritual formation from the beginning was based that Jesus not only reconciled me as individual to God, but also he is the answer to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to my questions concerning the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In fact, in 1989, Salim started an organization called Musalaha, an Arabic word for reconciliation. The strategy of our ministry is how we are going to break the dehumanization, the prejudice and demonization of the other. And 20 years ago, we took 15 Israelis and 15 Palestinians into the desert. We got up in the morning, and for the 30 people, 15 Israeli, 15 Palestinian, we had 15 camels. On each camel, we assigned Israeli and Palestinian, and for three days, we crossed the desert on camels. In the beginning, it was a huge, big objection. No, we're not going to do that. After a while, as we're in the desert, we have observed a fundamental change happening to people. In the beginning, it's like, whoa, what's going on? Like, I should talk to them, I should not talk to them. Like, be really friendly with them. But after I finished, say, okay, like, I feel God talked to me. Elias Nawea, a Palestinian Christian, saw his heart soften in that desert. So did Isaac Cohen, an Israeli whose new faith in Jesus brought a new perspective on the conflict. It's not fair to hate somebody you don't know. Why people hate each other? Because people don't see each other. You don't have this option to actually meet face to face. It was, it was really good talking with them and they heard them side and they heard my side. Then I had the, the chance to really get knowing as a buddy, as a friend, a Palestinian. And in that desert, a friendship was born. An Israeli and a Palestinian, historically arch enemies, choosing love over hate, understanding over conflict. A new generation embracing peace in the land where the Prince of Peace was born. With Jesus, we can do anything. Especially, especially here, it's like we see all these things and we pray for peace. When we go celebrate when Jesus was born, it's five minutes from here, 
we pray that Jesus, he only can do the peace because he's a prince of peace. In Bethlehem, no less, where walls separate and soldiers march, the ultimate Christmas gift is passed on to yet another generation. Two men from two worlds sharing one faith and a new friendship, rooted in their common passion to change the world one heart at a time. I put my Israeli and Jewish definition in the back, and I take my definition as a human being, as the sons of God and the believers in the front. Are we building today the foundation that our children will have better life than us. This is something that we have responsibility. This is something that we need to do it now. This is something that we are entrusted with. Jesus called us to pursue and to chase peace. In the Hebrew biblical language, peace is something that you work for, you labor, you pursue, you chase. of peace, we are the ambassador of peace. And reconciliation where Jesus changed your heart and your identity, in the process also change how you perceive and look to the others. Can we have the step of faith like the shepherds to go to Him, to find in Him what we need? Can we journey into a distance far away crossing the desert in obedience to follow Him. This is the challenge for us today. The pain is so great. There are so many scars. My grandfather, my father, and myself were longing to see peace in this land. Something that our children and grandchildren will experience. It's on. Hello? Hello. It's nice to see all of you today. I'm, I'm so grateful that you came out. My name is Chedva. I uh, was born to a Jewish family in New York. A, we were a secular family. We would keep a Passover, for example, but it would be a family dinner. It wasn't uh, associated with God or prayer, anything uh, spiritual. 
It would just be our family getting together and having a dinner. That's the way that I was raised in my home. Uh, I grew up in America. I served in the United States Army for five years. Uh, when I came back, I had some relationships that were in turmoil in my life. And I actually saw a vision of myself committing suicide. I ran home, I, I uh, fell down on my bed, and without any understanding of church or spirituality, I cried out, God, if you're there, I need you. And two weeks later, uh, a woman came to work in my office, and it seemed like light was coming from her face. So I asked her if I could go to church with her, and uh, I got saved. I stopped alcohol, drugs, everything that day. And uh, for the next couple of months, I sat there in every service with tears just streaming down my face. And uh, I got the nickname from my pastor, Jeremiah. Um, friends took me to a Messianic congregation after that. And uh, there I spent about four years hearing a lot about prophecy and Jews moving back to Israel. So I figured America was big enough, didn't need me. So if I go back to Israel and I have a job and pay taxes, raise a family, that that would be helpful to Israel. Very simple. So I packed my little bags and I moved to Israel had no clue what I was getting myself into. I had never been there. I didn't know anyone there. And the only stories that I had heard about Israel was from the Israeli embassy that was helping me get there. So they had a little uh, bet on me. They were, they were trying to make it sound very nice. And come, we will give you a one-way ticket. Should've, I should have thought about that when they said uh, we'll give you free Hebrew lessons for six months. Come, come back home. So I did. But I have to tell you, when I got there, it was not the Israel that I had been reading about in the Bible. Uh, good evening. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and then I'll tell you how life is in Bethlehem for those who have never been. And for those who have been, they will just recall the good memories or the bad memories. I don't know what to say, really. Uh, my name is uh, Shireen. I come from Beit Zahur. Beit Zahur means house of magic because the, the good news came to Beit Zahur through the angels, of course, and the shepherds, the shepherds were walked to Bethlehem to see the baby Jesus. So I actually live in the shepherd's field which I really love. Uh, I am happily married with uh, four children. Sometimes my husband is the fifth, but we don't talk about it at home. Uh, I have all ages, so if you want to come and visit me, you will be in a busy house. I have a two-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, and 12-year-old. So the dad is babysitting, how lovely, right? Uh, I come from a, a Christian family. We were um, raised in a Lutheran school, 
and a Lutheran church. Most of the churches in the area have schools. So I attended the Lutheran church and I went to the Lutheran school. So I know, for example, Arabic, then comes the second language would be English. They give you the choice, but since you're in a Lutheran school, they ask you to learn German. So I know some German, for example. I, um, I accepted the Lord as my savior when I was uh, 14 in, in that uh, Sunday school when I became a, a leader later on and a Sunday school teacher later on and so on. I grew in life, uh, in the busy life of Bethlehem, and I attended the Bethlehem University. I have a BA degree in, in English literature. Um, and uh, when I graduated, goes back again to the Lutheran school because they try to give you priority as a Lutheran to join the school as a teacher. So I became a teacher, an English language teacher for a year at the school. And that was a year where so many challenges came back to me because I've already been part of the second and the first intifada, which is the uprising, where so many people were killed and there was so much of, of pain taking place in the country. As the pain that I went through as a child was just being by myself despite the fact that I have two brothers that are older than me. My two brothers had to leave the country because of the intifada. There were no jobs, no schools, good schools, universities back then, and they both left the country. One lived in Germany and one is living in America up to this day. Uh, I never looked at uh, my country as uh, a lovely, peaceful country. I really seeked another place as the land of honey and milk. The Bible says that our land, the Holy Land, is the land of honey and milk, but I started seeking America as the land of honey and milk. So here Chedva comes into the land, and what do I do? I actually decide to leave the land, and I go to America to pursue my master's degree in principalship or educational administration, and I stayed there for two years. When I got to Israel, I made myself a promise. I said, I'm not going to give my political opinion for 10 years because it's so complicated here. It is so difficult to understand all the different nuances of what's going on. <clears throat> I've been there now 25 years, and so if you want my opinion, I feel very free to give it. <laughs> when I got to Israel, um, I recognized that there were other groups of people that they dressed different and they spoke different language. Their children go to different schools. And uh, between my house and Shireen's, there's a wall that separates us. But even inside of Israel, uh, people self-segregate. They stay in their own neighborhoods or cities or towns and they don't mix, generally. There's a few cities that that do mix, but mostly they do not mix with each other. Not only that, they're not treated the same. And for me, uh, that was not acceptable. So I started to try to find a way that I could meet some of these people that, that are not in my community, 
and I was invited to a women's weekend put on by Musalacha. Musalacha means reconciliation in Arabic. And the first weekend I was there, my roommate was Rima Halabi. She runs the Christian bookstore in Bethlehem. And we had a lovely time. She taught me a few words in Arabic. I taught her a few words in Hebrew. Um, and we just really enjoyed getting to know each other. And while we were leaving, she said, my, my child, my 17-year-old son, he is a photographer. And I'm so proud of him that he made this website and put his work up there. Would you look at it when you get back home? So, of course, pleasure. I got back home, I opened my computer, and I opened the website, and I saw pictures taken by this 17-year-old boy full of tanks and blood and bodies, things that a seven, no 17-year-old no person, actually, should have to see. I had never seen that violence before. So I called my friend who invited me to Musalacha, and I said, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to process this pain that I see through his photogra photography. And my friend said, just stay. You will be able to work through it, but if you withdraw now, it will be more painful than if you had never reached your hand out in the first place. So just stay and work through it together. Well, Khedva uh, decides to stay, whereas I decide to leave. And I decided to leave because if I tell you a bit more about the situation in Bethlehem, for example, or in Palestine in general, to a Palestinian, it's a miserable situation. In October 1999, everybody for the first time in history, let's say, you know, I say the history like the, the life, that the cycle that they, we were living, we were waiting for the millennium to come because we've been made promises that many people are coming to the land, millions of tourists. They, we were not talking even about one million. We were talking about, you know, receiving millions of tourists to the country in December 1999 to celebrate the millennium. And uh, that image I will never forget because October was the time where actually things happened exactly the opposite. War took place again, bulldozers, many people killed. All the renovation of the old city of Bethlehem was destroyed completely. And I was just a new graduate, a new English language teacher in the Lutheran school. Why do I have to keep up with such thing? What made the pressure on me was also the fact that as a Christian, and the minority in the country, maybe that's not the place where I belong. Mind to remind you that this country is the birthplace of Jesus Christ, yet the Christians are not there. They all are leaving. And why me? Why should I stay in the land? If I tell you a little bit about the demography of the land and so on, the, the Palestinians altogether are about 5 million now. They're 
they are, I would say, categorized or scattered into three different parts of the country. One, they are imprisoned, and I quote me on this, imprisoned in what's called Gaza Strip. We have two million people live in Gaza in a cage, and there are only 800 Christians in Gaza. Where you move to the West Bank, the West Bank, I call it the Swiss cheese. And why is it the Swiss cheese? Because we have Palestinians in different areas, and the surroundings are settlements. In the West Bank itself, we have over 200 settlements. And then you go to the third kind of a Palestinian, who were there when the 1948 and 1967 war happened, and people were actually expelled from their home. Some people stayed, and they are now under what's called Israel. And they have even the Israeli citizenship. So these are the three kinds. So what am I doing in the holy land? I left. I left and I enjoyed living in America. One thing I enjoyed in America, being free. I would be able to just get in my car and go all the way from south to north. Nobody would stop you. We got all the way to the, even to the borders of Canada, Niagara Falls. Nobody would even talk to you or even would ask you for what's called the passport. Nothing like that. <clears throat> Two whole wonderful years, I finished my master's degree, and then my father called me. So, Shireen, when are you coming back? I was like, who said I'm coming back? You know, I have plans to go for my PhD. No, 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 you have to come back. And I said, what, why do I have to come back? He said, just come. And out of culture and obligation, I said, I cannot just tell my dad no. And, you know, on the phone, I have to talk to him face to face. And I applied for my PhD. I got accepted in the program, principalship. And I went over for Easter. And I never went back to America. And why is that? Because the Lord had a different calling than mine. And it was the hard way for me because unemployment back then in the West Bank itself was over 60%. So what am I doing in the West Bank with all this, you know, happening? And the Lord opened not only one door, two doors, three doors. And one of these doors that opened is reconciliation. And that's the day I decided that I want to do something for my people because I got the privilege to taste what freedom is. And I wanted this for my people as well. And since then, I've been engaged with women ministry at Musalaha. And it's just an amazing ministry. And I have so much to tell you tonight what we do. Right. So I continued on in Musalaha. And I have to tell you that one of my motivating factors was very selfish. I have two little girls. And I did not want them to have to go into the army. In Israel, any child that's born, any Jewish child that's born, uh, when they turn 18, girl or boy, has to go into the army for two to three years. I did not want my daughters standing at a checkpoint and humiliating a 65-year-old Palestinian man in front of his children. I didn't want them 
involved in any violence that's going to traumatize them later. And so, at least in my corner of the world, I want to work for peace. It's not something that's going to fall out of the sky. If I'm sitting in my home and I believe in peace, I will change nothing. I have to go out and make it happen. As much as there is in me, I have to apply myself and make it happen. So I joined Musalaha. I was a, a loyal woman in the, in the women's conferences for 10 years. And then when a, a position opened up in the office, I applied. And uh, Shireen and I have been working together on women's projects for the last uh, nine, 10 years. We also have summer camps. We have youth trips. Uh, young adults, we work with them. Uh, in one way, we work just with Messianic Jews and Palestinian Christians. But in the last three, four years, we've been asked by the entire community, by Muslims and by Jews, to facilitate meetings for them because there's no place else for people to have meaningful conversations where both people are able to um, express their opinions and find commonalities together and then work on projects together in the community. So that's what we do at Musalaha, and I'll tell you a quick story uh, of how this affected my daughters, who are now grown up. Uh, by the way, I didn't get my goal. They both did serve in the army. But I continue to work on it so perhaps my grandchildren won't have to be in the army. Uh, my daughter Anna, she joined a, a youth trip, uh, 10 Israelis, 10 Palestinians, and 10 Dutch, and they went to Holland. One of the Palestinians that was on the trip was from Jenin, which is a very violent place to grow up, and he had never been outside of Jenin before. He had never met a Jewish Israeli, uh, had no idea that there were Jewish Israelis who also believe in Jesus. Uh, I think my daughter was the first one. In one of their conversations, he told her, you don't belong in Israel. That was a shocking thing to my daughter because she's growing up in the Golan Heights. That's where we live. And nobody there uh, would ever think to say such a thing. She had to come up, uh, think about her identity for herself, not what mom tells you and not what dad tells you but for herself, and it strengthened her identity. And she said, no, I was born in Jerusalem, and I belong there just as much as you do. In another conversation, uh, you know, they go out and they have fun and do biking and bowling and things like that. In another conversation on this 10-day trip, he found out that she lives in the Golan Heights. He said, that's not even part of Israel. You don't even live in Israel. That's Syria. So she had to think about that one as well. So the week was over, and I picked her up from the airport, and we're driving home, and she's mad. She's fuming. He said that our house isn't in Israel. He doesn't know. He does. He's never been to the Golan Heights. So we had to have a discussion, and I encouraged her to Google it, Figure it out for yourself. 
but just know that no one, no other country in the world recognizes Israel's sovereignty on the Golan Heights, only Israel. You have to know that. So she did do her own research. And as we do at Musalcha, there was a follow-up weekend a month later. And she, uh, we dropped her off. She went straight up to George from Janine. And she said, you know, you're right. She said, everyone else in the world does not consider it Israel, except for us. And she said that she could see the anger flow out of that boy. And he said, all I wanted you to say is that you're not always right. Come and sit with me and my friends. Uh, because of time, we don't have that much time, and we long, we, I think we need to leave time for questions, but I want to end up in a way, because there is a, something that's very important to understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. When you forgive someone, you can forgive someone in your own room, in your own house. You don't have to have people negotiate or people talk to one another for you to forgive. It's something between you and God. God, forgive him for what he did to me or forgive him for what he did to my family. But if you want to, to reconcile, it has to be two parties. There is no way that I can reconcile with Hedva unless I actually talk to Hedva. So this is the, the message of reconciliation that both nations cannot whatsoever, under any biblical principles, cannot say that they should leave and we stay. And why is that? Because we're almost 11 million people. There is not even one chance that one will kick the other out. And the only way to do it is to reconcile with one another. And not only to talk about it, but actually create the movement where we can do things together towards peace and reconciliation. So as I was saying that if I believe in peace and sitting my, sit in my house, nothing will change. I just want to point out just a few, a few things that maybe you might agree with me. Uh, in 2015, the UN report stated that in the whole world, just that year, $14.3 trillion was spent on war. $14.3 trillion. And in that same year, 1% of that was spent on peace. If we want to be reconciled in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in Israel and Palestine, if we want to do that, we have to be active. Believe me, the people making 14.3 trillion are very active. They are sowing discord as much as they can to sell what they're selling. And in my opinion, Shireen is not my enemy. Discord, distrust, these are my enemies. These are the things we need to fight against. Because if we are united, and I know what she needs, I know her pain, I know her father's in the hospital, I know that, uh, that uh, her kids are having trouble in math, I can support her. But if we have discord between us, I don't know what's going on with her. I can't support her, we are not unified. 
And the last thing that I would say to you is, if I say that I love my brother, if I say that I love God, but I hate my brother, I am a liar. One of the dangers is that we think what we've heard tonight is for them over there. Oh, it's a Palestinian-Israeli issue. It's a Middle Eastern issue. This reconciliation business. As we have taught this nation and Dr. Munyara and I have toured the nation. There are people in Westminster, and there are people on the Falls Road, and you know what I'm saying that by that, who are saying, we are fragmented. We are conflicted. We're traumatized. And we're talking about this quote, United Kingdom, am I resonating with you? We have parliamentarians who are weeping before us as we meet with them saying, oh, my, my constituency is split down the line and I don't know how to reconcile it. I'm living with post-Brexit trauma. I'm living with the threat of gangs and priests and Community leaders are saying we're seeing people killed outside the manse, outside the vicarage, just because they come from a different postcode. Will you come over and help us? I'm going to tell you this before we go to questions. I was in the offices of Sinn Féin with Salim Munyaya. And there were two men in front of me, and they had muscles bigger than my thighs. They were. They'd been on the blanket. They'd been in the maze. Some of you know what that means. They were hardcore. And at the end of the conversation, they said, we are frightened because we're old enough to remember the abyss and the darkness of days gone by. And this city of Birmingham bears those scars for those of you have ears to hear and a memory to jog. And we know the darkness of that abyss and we don't want to go and fall back into it. But we're passing Mr. John, Mr. Drake, we're passing, and there's others coming who don't remember those days. And the others in our community, meaning the other side, don't seem to want to engage with us. I heard that. Salim heard that. So what did we do? We changed our, uh, our program and we went to the leadership of the, of the other side and we spoke with the politicians and it fell on deaf ears. So we went to the church. 
And the old, older people in the church looked at us and said, yes, we've been here before. We don't want to slip into that abyss. And as one person said to me, John, we only know the quick step and they only know the tango, but we both want to dance. Will you teach us how to dance? And I said, no, but I know an organization that's teaching other people how to dance. So please, whatever you're thinking about the work of Musalaha, it's for our nation as much as it is for the nations in the land that some call holy. I want you to just bear that in mind, that we're not just talking biblical theory. We're talking about community survival. So could I have one or two questions? Please, not sermons, <laughs> you know, but just questions. Sir, there's a gentleman there. Is there anybody else who would, so I can get a, and another one over there. Thank you. You're number one, sir. Yeah, thank you so much for your, your storytelling of, of what's happened. Um, I was intrigued that uh, the example you gave of your daughter and the, um, uh, the Palestinian lad was about personal understanding and, in that sense, personal reconciliation. And yet your desire is that your granddaughters, you know, that in fact, the society changes so they don't have to go into the forces at the age 18. Is there a strategy then to take what uh, personal reconciliation and make it community-wide, make it country-wide? I mean, how do, you, how do you get beyond the individual incidences of people understanding each other, which is, which is great, to something greater? Uh, so we've, uh, we've been researching this. As you said, we don't, we don't want to just uh, you know, use our money and not have a good outcome, right? Um, research has shown lately that you need a movement. We do not think uh, that we will put all of our eggs in the baskets of uh, pol politics because the governments are not, uh, they're not dependent on God and, or on some values that we can see. So our hope is not in the governments. But if we have a movement, they will have to answer to what the people want. So you may think, oh, well, you need a majority of people to be on your side. No, you don't. Research says that you only need 5%. Once you have 5% in, in this um, atmosphere that we have in the world right now, it goes viral and people run to it because it's trending. So we need 5% of active people and then it will flow in the direction that we want. Hi, thank you very much for tonight. Um, this might be a really dreadful question, in which case I apologize up front. Um, can you give us an example of something that you have, the two of you have or you do disagree over, something substantial, and tell us how you, how you deal with that? <laughs> do you want to you pick one? No, you start. Okay. 
So uh, one of the things that uh, I disagree with uh, people, for example, now that Khidva, for example, lives in the Golan Heights. And to me, the Golan Heights is, is, is not only uh, living in a, a non-Palestinian or Israeli country. I mean, she is a settler. And to us, a settler is not uh, a very, you know, not a very good person that you want to be around because uh, they are not uh, even, they're breaking all the rules and they're having their own rules. And uh, the experience I had with settlers in my area, especially the West Bank, is dreadful. That's one. Two. <laughs> Yeah. So we have. I have a problem with the um, interpre interpretation of Bible. And who uh, who is a Jew? And to to many people, they just think you know because he is carrying a, a citizenship like an Israeli citizenship, or let's let's put it properly, if your mom is a Jew, then automatically whoever comes along is a Jew. And then, like what Hedva did, she came and she, they gave her a, a ticket to come to the land and stay in a house and be trained or uh, she got the language and so on because she's a Jew. Well, this does not happen to my people. I can recall thousands of, uh, thousands of Palestinians who are out in the diaspora that want to come back. And they can't. Three. <laughs> So I'll tell you what we do when we have, uh, we have disagreements, disagreements, we don't agree. Um, we teach our ladies um, listening skills, compassionate listening. So what do we do? I will never, I'm not going to change who I am, and Shireen's not going to change who she is. But we want to have a conversation. So when she's talking, my job is to listen to her. Uh, we say in Hebrew, kuli uh, ozen, my whole self is an ear. So we practice this skill in a way that makes it, you know, in, with very emotional discussions to make them, challenge them to use this skill. And what you have to do is to take your opinions, your idea of your own self, and put it in parentheses. You don't leave it, you don't, you don't give yourself away, you don't change who you are, but put it for this moment in parentheses and we'll come back to it, okay? Now I turn to Shireen and give her all of me so that I can hear what she's saying and then it's her turn to do the same for me. So one of the questions we do to really challenge everyone, uh, we ask both an Israeli and a Palestinian, how do you get water in your house? Okay? So an Israeli would answer, as I'm going to tell you, I turn on the faucet, I have water. If it's a sunny day, I have hot water. If it's not a sunny day, I put on the boiler and then I have hot water. I use as much water as I want. Nobody tells me what to do with my water. I can leave it running all day and I'll still have water. I don't understand the question. 
And you would say, well, how do I get water? I try to steal water from the settlements next door because they have 84% of the water resources and I only have 16. I dig, I actually, we actually did, we dug, is the pastos dug? Reservoir in the ground where we were supposed to have our parking, the, the, our car parked, because we have no water for three weeks. Or we have a container that looks so ugly on the top of our houses to contain water for three weeks if the water is cut from the uh, Israeli settlements or the government. This is how I get water. So this is one of the tactics that we use when we work with a women's group or a young adults group because they can't argue. They get new information they didn't know before, but they can't argue because the title of the exercise is be all of you an ear, not a mouth. Okay, so we'll go there. Thank you. Thanks for a great talk. Um, I just remember on the 28th of January, we had uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu promising that a great new time of peace was coming. I just wonder, without being political, um, <laughs> without, without being political, what do you think was the significance of Mahmoud Abbas's absence? Because surely, what does Donald Trump need to do to give Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu the chance to broker that reconciliation? It's actually a good question. And, and please hear my heart. If all the countries of the world would back off, not give money to Israel and not give money to Palestine, we would settle our own conflict. The problem is Israel is getting money from and support from a lot of very um, uh, powerful countries, and they don't have the need to make peace with their neighbor. They're being supported in everything they do, and, and there's no need to make peace. I, I say that with a little asterisk, because Israel thinks they're not paying a price, but I know very well that there's a lot of suicide attempts by soldiers who are traumatized from what they're doing. And it's not uh, publicly acceptable to talk about it. So Israel is thinking that they're not paying a price, but it's not true. Uh, just quick, uh, the whole deal, let's say if, uh, if you're wondering about the deal of the century, for example, I can just give you one thing uh, that uh, I'm really resentful about it because uh, they're trying to make a decision on the behalf of the Palestinians why the Palestinians are not present in the dialogue. That's one. And uh, two, I'm not saying that I have an ideal uh, government. On the contrary, I say it bluntly. I think the Israeli government and the Palestinian government are horrible governments. And, uh, but at the same time, if I want to justify things that uh, Abbas is doing, and I'm not trying actually, the, the problem with Abbas that he has no power, 
And whatever Israel is trying to put pressure, and it is actually working on Abbas, even in peace dialogue, resources, export, import, whatsoever, at the end of the day, the answer goes to the Israeli government. I'm very interested in what you said about the conversations you have um, when groups of Palestinian and Israeli women meet. Um, one of the conversations I wonder about is about fear, because fear is so critical. I mean, I was talking to somebody on a bus today who are against immigration because they're fearful of what immigrants have been doing in this country. That's the way they look at it. So how, how do you go around addressing people's fears in the conversation that you have? Uh, in, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert, but in my opinion, uh, the best way to deal with fear is to bring it out into the open and talk about it. Um, for example, we have a new group of women. They just went to the desert together um, in November, and they had their first uh, meeting in a, in a conference hall in January. And it's in a place that's legal for Israelis and Palestinians. It's right on the edge of Beit Jala. So most Israelis don't go there. We did not give them a choice. We said, this is the hotel. This is when you show up. They have a parking lot. If you need help finding the place, let us know. Uh, several of the Israelis wrote later in the WhatsApp group, Oh, I'm so glad I went. I almost didn't go because I was afraid to drive there. But now that I've driven there, I know that it's safe. So sometimes we have to push each other out of our comfort zones. Um, you have anything else? Yeah, well, uh, some people actually follow after fear. If you're fearful in so many of our meetings, some people decide not to continue. And if you're challenged, like many, like what we try to do at Musabaha, then you continue and you break the fear. I have to say, and the women that I've went, met in Musalaha are the most courageous women I've ever met in my life in any other group of people. In uh, all Christians meet in all Christian meetings, certainly in my church, you have to keep faith with the kettle, and we're going to have tea and coffee. <laughs> but when Paul was uh, in Athens, he spoke, and the Holy Word of God says, "Many said, we'll hear of thee again." Yeah. So the invitation here is, if you want to hear of the work of Masalaha, and you want to hear uh, of Hedva and Shireen again, they're not going to impose, they're going to respond to your call. How you mechanize that through your leaderships and through your networks, it's not for me to tell or to impose. But they sense that there is an opportunity and there is a willingness to listen. Yesterday was a busy day. Hedra and Shireen spoke to over a thousand Muslims a couple of miles down the road. And they sat there, males on that side, 
Females on that side, listening, listening to a Jew who is a Christian. Now that does your head in at times. Could you imagine what it was doing to them? They were spellbound to listen to an Arab, a Palestinian, who's a Christian. Wow. And then in the evening, they went off to a madrasa. There's 130 women and children listening to Hebron Shireen. Why? Because one Muslim leader had come out with us to the land, met these women, seen the work that was going on, and, I, and said, I want my people in the city of Birmingham to hear of thee. I can tell you God is doing mighty things across this land. And I thank God the BBC don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, because they'd only try to spoil it or diss it. God is moving, and he's moving through you. Sir. Thank you, John, very much. Thank you so much to Hedva. Thank you so much to Shireen. It's just been such a privilege to hear from you this evening. And uh, as you know, I have from time to time had the opportunity of visiting uh, your homes, uh, indeed even close to the Golan Heights on one occasion, and, uh, and certainly into the Bethlehem region. And we'll do so again later this year with a, a, a greater sense of privilege of walking the land, but also a deeper sense of pain that is there all the time. And... That word reconciliation is so powerful and search at the heart of our faith. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that in Jesus Christ you have come and you have reconciled this world to yourself through his death on the cross and given to us a ministry of reconciliation. And we Pray that you'll forgive us for those times when we've lived in our own little worlds and have not really listened to those who are so different and in different places. That sometimes unknowingly we have added to the pain of division and not reached out the hand of reconciliation. And Father, we pray that as we go away from this evening and reflect on what we have heard, that we may not only have a deeper and better understanding of that part of the world which is called the Holy Land and the challenges of those who live side by side as Israelis and Palestinians, but also, Lord, that you will speak into our lives and to the areas around us where there is difference and where you are calling us to be agents of reconciliation. And we pray for that work of your spirit, that powerful, deep work of your spirit across this land, across this nation and across the world. And we pray especially for uh, Shireen and for Hedda, that you will watch over them, protect them and minister into their hearts with your deep and wonderful love and enable them to be a channel of blessing and of reconciliation to others. Thank you, Lord, for this evening. 
And we pray that you will continue to speak into our lives so that this time will not suddenly end, but that its impact will stay with us and that we will respond to the promptings of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you so much for being here and uh, retiring offering afterwards. And if you wish to leave that way, the door is open. But the refreshments that we encourage you to share in will be in the hub area just over there. Thank you.